There's a kind of supernova where a star has gathered up 1.4 times the mass of the sun and it detonates in a moment. And this is known as a type 1a supernova. And astronomers find them very useful because they can act as a standard candle. You know how much mass exploded, and so you measure the brightness of the supernova, and that tells you how far away it is. And this technique was used to figure out the existence of dark energy and that the actual expansion of the universe is expanding. Well, astronomers know of about 1500 of these type 1a supernova, and they are just so useful for so many different measurements that astronomers want to do. And just today, a new survey of these supernova called Pantheon Plus was released. It contains 1,570 type 1a supernovae, and in there are the secrets, the answers, maybe, to dark energy, to dark matter, to many of these fundamental questions that astronomers are looking to ask. And so I had a chance to talk with Dr. Dylan Brute, who is one of the researchers at Harvard who helped compile this really comprehensive survey of supernova data. And we talk about what this means. How do they gather this data? How do they pull it together? And what answers does it give us about the past future of the universe? Does it give us any hints to figure out how to make various measurements of the universe match up with each other? It's a fascinating conversation right at the cutting edge of these ideas about dark energy, dark matter, cosmology. I think you'll find it really fascinating. All right, enjoy. Dr. Brout, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's funny, I reached out to you today because <laughs> you guys had just published some interesting research. And normally people take a couple of days to get back to me and you're like, how's 30 minutes from now? I'm like, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, that's that's good. I appreciate the uh, the the I guess the the speed. Um, so you and the, the research that I'm mentioning is that that you just published a press release from Harvard about the work with the Pantheon project. So so what is that or Pantheon Plus? Yeah, so this is work that I partially done here at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, um, and it's it's called Pantheon Plus. We call it that because it's the successor to Pantheon. The idea behind this is to collect all of the greatest data sets of type 1a supernovae and homogenize the data sets, analyze them in a coherent way, and put out a set of distances. So we use type 1a supernovae as distance markers throughout the universe. And that's really important for how we measure cosmological distances and infer different properties of the universe, for example, how it's expanding, what it's made of, and so on. And so our main goal is, is to collect as many high-quality type 1a supernovae and turn those into distances. And this this search of of for type 1a supernovae, I mean, this goes all the way back when you think back to 1998 with the work that uh, researchers were doing to try and figure out the expansion rate of the universe and discovered that it is actually accelerating. Why does the type 1a supernova work as such a, a great distance candle? Yeah, so um, even in our data set 
right now, it's actually been important to include some of those supernovae from the late 90s. And so they, they've been really useful for decades and, and we're continuing to use them. And I think the future of use, their, their usability is, is going to continue to be more and more exciting. Um, that's because they are found in large quantities. They're found, uh, they're very bright. When, when, when a type 1a supernova explodes, it explodes and outshines the brightness of the galaxy that hosts it. So we can see them at really far distances. Um, and fundamentally, they're what we call standardizable, as you said. Um, we, 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 don't, we, we call them standard candles, but they're not perfectly standard. So what we believe is happening is we have a white dwarf star. That's a star that reached the end of its life. And there is some companion and the companion feeds material to the white dwarf until it reaches this fundamental limit. It's called the Chandrasekhar limit. It's 1.4 times the mass of the sun, but it's this fundamental physical limit where the electron degeneracy pressure can no longer support the star and the star explodes. Now it explodes roughly at 1.4 solar masses. So we know roughly how much energy is involved. We know roughly how bright it will get and that's where the standardizability comes into play, or when we call them standard candles. Um, if we know how bright they are in terms of when we measure them on the sky and we, and we compare that to how bright they appear or how bright they should be, the ratio of the two tells us the distance. It's as if you had a candle and you knew its brightness, but you moved it really far away from you. You could right. infer how far away it is depending on how bright it appears. Now, there are methods, I mean, there's a bunch of standard candles, there's Cepheid variables, there's the expansion of the universe itself, the cosmic microwave background. How well does the type 1a supernova overlap with other methods of measuring distance in the universe? Yeah, so um, we actually also use Cepheid variables in our um, distance ladder analysis. I'm sure we'll get to talk about that shortly. Um, they they are uh, the the brightest standard candle that that can be that is well understood at this point. So there's a lot of overlap, and they've been cross checked at various uh, scales in the nearby universe, the Type One A supernovae. But when it comes to measuring the universe all the way out ten billion years into the past, three quarters of the way back to the Big Bang, it's really the One A supernovae that that stand out as as the, the most useful distance indicator um, in comparison in comparison to like Cepheid variable stars or tip of the red giant branch is another method. Those are all much, much fainter standard candles. So they can only be seen out to much shorter, closer distances. But there are overlaps. Like you can you can see a type 1a supernova, you know it's in a galaxy. There are also Cepheid variables in that galaxy. You can yep. double check yep. to make sure that the Absolutely. the type 1a supernova is giving off the amount of energy as predicted by the models. Yeah. Yeah. We we do yeah. those cross checks. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so then what you know, you mentioned that you're doing this survey of all the type 1a supernova that you can get your hands on how like how many are in the the pantheon plus survey yeah so so i'll just make a little bit of a distinction here the pantheon plus is what we call a compilation it's a compilation of many different surveys and we're a team that has come together of a lot of the experts and the leaders of 
previous supernova surveys. So for example, I've worked a lot on the dark energy survey. Um, my colleagues have worked on PanStars and SDSS and another uh, low redshift survey called Foundation. There's surveys that were conducted here um, a decade or more, around a decade ago here at Harvard, the, the Center for Astrophysics Samples. And so we've taken the people that have collected those samples originally, and we've come together as a team to reanalyze all of them using the latest and greatest tools, the latest and greatest models, and analyze them all homogeneously. Um, so, so Pantheon Plus is like a, co a collaboration of of different surveys, and and it's really been a little bit of a, a data wrangling process and a bit of a recalibration process to right. get them all on the same flux scales, the same brightness scales, um, to be able to make those comparisons because we have supernovae on different telescopes that we're combining. Right. I mean, I mean, in other fields like the medical field, this kind of meta-analysis is the gold standard for trying to figure out whether or not it makes sense to, whether it's better to eat fat or better to eat carbohydrates, yeah. or, you know, like all this kind of stuff. You do these giant longitudinal studies with thousands yeah. of people, and then you merge together all of those studies into one meta study, and that gives you one of the best answers you can have. So, it's, so is this fundamentally like, like just a really good piece of, of data that then astronomers can use to test their theories against? Yeah, I, I think that's a great analogy. And I think we like to think that um, this is kind of putting together what, what we believe is the gold standard, incorporating all of the facets that we've learned since the collection of those data sets back 10, 20 years ago. Um, when I think about a meta-analysis, like in the medical field, I, I don't always think of, well, they've gone and reanalyzed everything from all of those data sets, including recomputing the fluxes from the images, re-downloading the images. I mean, we really redone everything um, that we possibly can get our hands on. Not We can't get our hands on everything, but we've really tried to. And at every step in the analysis, we've tried to redo it um, with their data. Right, right, right. But using modern computers, modern techniques, every yeah. lesson that has been learned about image processing, every yeah. and there's so much value in in preserve in in making the use of the data that has been collected for the last 20, 30 years. And when it comes to supernova, especially in the nearby universe, you you do need that time. It's if you build a bigger, better telescope, it's not necessarily going to get you more supernova in the nearby universe. You you have to wait. And so we, we value this data, even though it's older, even though we've had to make some concessions in, in, in analyzing it to get it into our samples. We put some uncertainty on what we believe, that how much we trust that data, and we propagate it into our analysis because we really want the largest data set we can. And, and you asked how many we have. We have 1,550 type 1A supernovae, um, and we have 1,701 light curves of those 1550 supernovae. So this is a bit of a new facet of, of our anal analysis that others I'm not aware of have done, which is that we have multiple observations from different telescopes of the same supernova. So we can do cross checks on the telescope hmm. themselves. Yeah, I mean, I know that every time there is a new type 1A supernova that's that's detected, a lot of astronomers will drop what they're doing and image it, especially if it's relatively close. What is the closest one? Oh, gosh. Um, 
I know there was a, a super close one, uh, 2011 FE, that was observed by almost every telescope. Um, that's that's the one that in in that that has occurred in in my memory. I think there have been closer ones that were before I was maybe in middle school. Um, but but uh, yeah, that 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 was a big one. Um, but nothing like like there hasn't been one seen in the Milky Way. There hasn't been one no. in the large or small Magellanic cloud. There was a different kind of supernova. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Nothing in Andromeda. Like you're you're having to go out into the tens of millions of light years to to see these type one A supernovas so far. Yeah, yeah. So so we just have to wait. We have to be patient. There are surveys of the universe coming online uh, that are going to be completely revolutionary, but that's mostly going to happen further out into the universe, where where you have enough galaxies that can have supernova that, that go off. Um, and that's really going to change the game. And and that those aren't going to be meta-analyses. That's going to be a single survey that collects a million supernovae. I mean, this is the, the, the it's going to be incredible. Um, but we're not there yet. We're almost there, but we're not there. So this is this is our chance to do the best we could with everything we had for the last 30 years and kind of set the stage for these future telescopes. Now we do know of some historical supernovae that have been relatively close and relatively bright. I think about like Tycho Brahe's supernova, and there's the one that made the Crab Nebula. Do we think that any of those were formed from a Type 1A supernova? Seen uh, in the historical record? Yeah, I, I believe some of them. I, I don't I don't remember which ones off the top of my head, but yeah. it's, it's, it's possible. If, yeah, that's a good one. I'd have to double check which one. Okay, yeah. I, and I'm like, if you could... I mean, do we look out into this into our neighborhood right now and see the precursor? Do we say that's yeah, probably yeah. And a type people of here supernova? At the CFA who who are studying stars that look like they could go supernova. Um, so yeah, that's totally a a, a a whole separate sort of subfield. That, but but it's it's not really like they're watching and waiting. It's more of a studying the populations. Of super of, of stars that could become supernovae. Um, yeah, I, 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 I had I learned fairly yeah. recently, like the the story that I had always told was like there's plenty of of novae that we know fa on a fairly regular basis where a star is choking down a piece of another star and then blasts off radiation. And I had come to understand that oh, yeah. inevitably the down downstream was that that star would eventually feed on its last meal and then detonate as a supernova. But it turns out probably not that in fact, each time you have this nova, it's actually losing a bit of mass and it may never reach the supernova yeah. point. We, we, we don't, we, I, I'm not aware of any current systems where we see something like that happen that could go super uh, type 1A supernova. But I do know that people are studying these binary systems that, that could eventually uh, turn into a 1A. And so if, if, if that classical Nova situation where you do have these two stars that are a white dwarf is feeding from another and that won't get you to supernova, like, what has it got to be that is, that is like, what is this environment that is generating the supernova? Do, I mean, you say we don't exactly know, but you've got to have yeah, an so opinion. We, we have an idea. idea. I mean, th there's like two general trains of thought and, and both might be possible. We, we look for evidence of both, um, it's it's not totally clear, but but uh, we think there is what's potentially called the single degenerate scenario, which is a white dwarf star 
and some other companion star, um, not necessarily any specific subtype, and that companion star feeds material to the white dwarf, or it could be two white dwarfs, the double degenerate scenario, uh, where you have two degenerate stars and 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 they feed material to each other until one of them reaches the the one point four solar masses. So probably one of those two scenarios. It could be both, um, and we think there it could be like an eighty twenty you know scenario like that. Um, but but no no clear clear evidence uh, of that yet. Yeah, and it's interesting when you think about like gravitational waves, maybe they could give you some sort of sense of what was there before it detonated. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's at the, at the sensitivity of gravitational wave detectors, that's a waiting game that we'll have. To yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wait for Lisa. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so that's sort of, you know, what is causing this is still a mystery. If you did know, of course, I think that would really help with, with some of the theories, because as we're going to get to later on in the in the in this interview, uh, there are some problems in cosmology that that knowing more about these supernovae would really help. So then what are people using this catalog of supernova explosions for? What is its right. purpose? So one of the first things that we do with the data set, because we're motivated by understanding the expansion of the universe. So when you want to be able to measure the expansion, you need to be able to have some model to fit to the expansion. Now, the, the supernova give us distance markers throughout the universe. We also go and measure their redshifts. I, I skipped over this pro process because this is a, a sort of a, a secondary part to the analysis. But what we have to do in order to measure the expansion is know each supernova's distance, which is what we get from their standard or standardizable candle approach. And we go and get a redshift, a spectrum of the host galaxy that it lives in. And that tells us the rate of recession relative to our Milky Way. And the vast majority of that rate of recession is due to the expansion of the universe. So we are able to measure the expansion rate of the universe from our data set. Now, that's not the full story. The full story is the we are able to compare that expansion rate to models that uh, include all of the constituent components of the universe, that being dark matter, dark energy, radiation, ordinary matter, and compare those models and what they predict for the expansion rate to be, and compare that to our data set. And that's, that's the very first thing that we've done. And we've been able to actually make constraints on the relative proportions of dark matter and dark energy We've been able to, been able to uh, make a constraint on the combination of those two, we, including ordinary matter as well, uh, that gives us a measurement of the curvature of the universe and um, really tell us about the total energy in the universe. So if we, I guess, if there was no signal coming from dark matter or dark energy, what would you see in your data? Yeah, we, we would we would see it pretty emphatically. So we would see that uh, the when we when we plot our 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 curve of of supernova distances and redshifts, there is an entirely different curve that is predicted by models that have no dark energy, and that that curve is 
significantly different, more than five sigma different from our data set. Um, right. And when you say five sigma, like that is a one in, what is that? 10,000, 100,000 chance? I that think it's a wrong. million. Yeah. A um, one in a million chance? Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. in a million. They, one in a million chance that you're wrong, that it's that it's randomly wrong. So that's that feels pretty solid. <laughs> that feels yeah. like something you can you can bet your life on. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and so when, 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 sorry, when when we say a different curve, I mean the 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 model of a universe without dark energy, a universe without dark energy, you would expect at a given redshift, at a given recessional velocity, the the supernova to have a different brightness. Than what we observe it to be. So we're all we're doing is comparing the brightnesses uh, that we get from our data from our supernovae to the brightnesses predicted by a model of the universe that has some components that you believe exist in the universe. And so then, what are the those two, the dark matter and the dark energy? What are they doing independently to these supernovae? Yeah. Great question. So they do, they, dark matter and dark energy have a lot of different effects on the universe at different scales. And uh, they manifest in the supernovae in a specific way. And by supernova, I mean measurements of distance versus redshift. Now, in, this, in our data set, we can measure dark matter by looking at, it, it pops out of our models and it's a little bit more of a complicated fit. But what I can generalize it to is we're looking at the supernovae that are not in the most recent past, but somewhere between redshift 0.3 and 2, um, which is like roughly, I think, maybe 2 or 3 billion years into the past, going all the way to 10 billion years into the past. So there's this epoch in the history of the universe where it is dominated by uh, dark matter, matter and dark matter. Uh, and in our data set, we, we actually can see that the expansion of the universe is not accelerating. It's, it's kind of slowing down in that epoch. Hmm. But there's sort of a turnaround that happens. And around a redshift of 0.2, around, I think it's about two or three billion years ago, um, which is a coincidence in itself. It seems oddly close to where we live. Um, we can talk about that. But but um there there had there was a turnaround where dark energy began to dominate the history uh, dominate the energy in the universe and when that began the universe is now at this point accelerating and the the the, the supernovae are not only getting farther apart they're getting farther apart faster and faster right so so in other words in the early universe the amount of matter and dark matter were essentially set and they were acting as like a break on the expansion of the universe, trying to slow the expansion of these galaxies from getting away from each other. And you see this in your curve. And then because as the, because of gravity, yeah, the mutual gravity of all of these blobs pulling towards each other. But then the amount of dark energy is trickling in throughout this entire process. And eventually it starts to overwhelm this the force that's pulling them together from gravity. And now you see this acceleration kicking in as the dark energy exactly. starts to overwhelm the, the exactly. inward force from the, from the gravity. Exactly. And, and we think that's because dark energy, um, another way that we can describe it is, is the energy of the vacuum or the energy of empty space. And so in the early universe, the, the, 
space wasn't as large. Now that's that's a bit of a, 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 a not and a not well qualified statement because space is infinite. But uh, <laughs> right. or so we believe. Um, but the relative amount of dark energy was less. But since right. it's a constant density energy of empty space, as the universe expands, you get more space. And that means you get more dark energy because it's a fundamental property of empty space. And so the relative amount of dark energy compared to that fixed amount of matter and dark matter that, as you said, in the set in the beginning of the universe, that fixed amount is going down. The relative amount of dark energy is coming up. And so that's why we're now in this, what we call dark energy dominated universe. Right. Um, and so, I mean, one of the big unsolved mysteries right now is, is the amount of dark matter changing over time? you know, in the most yes. horrific possibility leading to a big rip into the into the far future. Sorry, did you, you say have dark enough matter? of dark energy? Sorry, dark okay. energy is increasing over time. Yeah. And so do do you see a change in the fundamental amount of dark energy over the volume of space? So so our analysis finds a constant energy energy density. That is the the density of of dark energy changing. Did, so did Space? you just cancel the apocalypse? <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, um, the, you, you just said that, that the big rip isn't going to happen. Is well, okay. So hold on. Um, we right. we so the big rip is is kind of yeah. Our data set does not conclusively say big rip or big freeze. Um, that that has to do with what kind of dark energy it is. If we find it's we find it is consistent with a cosmological constant or this energy density, uh, constant energy density. However, it is on the side of what we call quintessence or W less than minus one, our, our result. Um, so, uh, it, so it, it could, it could, we, we really can't say con definitively. We really can't. <sighs> All right. Um, could, like this idea of, of the big rip comes from, more and more dark energy being generated per volume of space. So if if back at that time when the, the universe was starting to accelerate, you were getting X amount of dark energy per cubic meter of space. Now maybe you're getting X times 1.1 per cubic meter of space. Yeah. And you and so so we're not able to detect that yet. Yeah. And, and this is another test that we did. And and this this is what now you're adding more like um, variables. You're saying, okay, maybe it could be changing. And when you add more variables, you, you're really stressing your your data's ability to constrain more variables. So it's it's hard for us to do. We did it, and we don't have a great constraint, but we we find that it is consistent with zero. That that is, it's not evolving. Things are not evolving. And then I'm gonna go by my. My earlier statement, you have canceled the apocalypse, big rip, <laughs> denied, and everything is going to be fine. Instead of the 13-ish billion years that you would have had left in the big rip scenario, you now have the 10 to the power of 100 years to enjoy the future of the universe, everybody. So so you're welcome. Uh, thank you for that, Dylan. <laughs> um, 
uh, and I mean, I know there's some other surveys coming. There's going to be Nancy Grace Roman. It's going to do a much better job. There's the dark energy survey. I mean, there's a lot of work being done to, to get at this, but I mean, that's kind of frivolous and hilarious, but I think it leads us to this other issue of the, and I hate to use the word, but you know, I'm going to say the crisis in cosmology, this, yeah, yeah. these fundamental measurements made at the cosmic microwave background and in the Cepheid variables, both of which are accurate and they give different numbers and their error bars do not overlap. Where, and since your measurements are neither of those, they're not Cepheid variables, they're not cosmic microwave background, where do your numbers fit in the expansion rate of the universe? Yeah. So we, we have, we have, uh, teamed up with the Cepheid variable team that, that's called Shoes. Um, it's led by Adam Reese. And Adam is one of our close collaborators. He's on our analysis as well of the supernovae. And, and uh, we've used the Cepheid variable measurements and Adam in his work has used the supernova measurements. And when you combine them, in, and you combine them also with absolute geometric measurements of the universe, you can get a measurement of the absolute expansion rate of the universe today, which we call the Hubble constant. And in our analysis, we do provide a measurement of the Hubble constant. It relies on the fact that we're using those geometric measurements and the Cepheid measurements in our analysis. But um, a third of that comes from the supernovae, third of that measurement. And um, it's it's an important third. It's It's the part that essentially gets us to actually measuring the Hubble constant, because the Hubble constant is the expansion rate, which we 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 calibrate from the supernovae. Um, we sorry, we measure the expansion rate from the supernovae. The supernovae themselves are calibrated. We call them. It's like a it's a distance ladder approach where the supernovae are calibrated all the way down to absolute distances. Um, one of the things that we haven't mentioned up until this point is that. Our, our analyses of dark matter and dark energy to this point that we've been talking about are using uncalibrated supernovae, relative distance measurements. To measure dark energy, to measure dark matter, you don't need absolute distances. You just need to know compared to this redshift and this redshift, what is the relative difference in brightness ex uh, explained by the models? If you want to measure the Hubble constant, you need to know the absolute brightness. Uh, distances and brightnesses. Um, so we've teamed up with the shoes team. We're kind of like, you, you can't, you can't analyze these data sets separately anymore. We've, we've made a lot of effort to uh, join them together and propagate uncertainties in the mo ro most robust possible way. And that includes propagating uncertainties from both Adam's group and my group simultaneously in measuring the Hubble constant. And, and I'm talking a lot about uncertainties and, possible sources of error, because that's really what the name of the game is now when it comes to measuring the Hubble constant. We've got really amazing data sets. We've got lots of supernovae. We've got lots of Cepheids. We've doubled the number of supernovae in Cepheid hosts, which means that our statistical error bars have come down dramatically. And we've got a one kilometer per second per megaparsec uh, measurement of the Hubble constant. And really what we care about most is potential sources of mistakes, potential sources of error or uncertainties. And that's what we've taken the most care on. Now, when we do that, we actually find a Hubble constant of 73 plus or minus one, which is five sigma discrepant from that Planck CMB value that you were mentioning. 
And so we, our Pantheon Plus data set, in combination with the shoes, Cepheids, variable stars, finds a one in a million chance, five sigma, of bad luck, good luck, I don't know, depending on how glass half full you are, that that the, the, the difference between the Planck measurement from the very early universe that assumes our current model of the universe full of dark energy, dark matter, ordinary matter, radiation, flatness, um, uh, it assumes that and we don't agree. So, so this, yes. this leads us to the dilemma. And, and so, but your analysis is laddering off of the Cepheid variables. Yeah. Is there any way that you could ladder off of the cosmic microwave background radiation? Uh, not, not really. Uh, there are other, uh, methods that have come about we call it the inverse distance ladder where we're not not laddering off of the cepheids where we ladder the supernovae off of the baryon acoustic oscillation uh scale now there's some subtleties about how that's actually done but you can ladder it to other methods yeah and and depending on what you ladder them to you get different results but you also have to be very careful about what assumptions go into the different measurements that you've laddered to. Um, right. Now, yeah. now I understand that some people feel that, that we don't understand type 1A supernovae as well as we do, that maybe there is dust that is influencing the imaging and it's, and like, it is always dust, right? <laughs> like, like if you want to blame something for ruining your observations, you can safely blame dust. Um, yeah. Yep. Do, do you feel at this point confident that 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 that's been ruled out? That you have a pretty yeah good yeah. So handle? so great question because this is what I've been neurosing over for the last couple of years and written a couple of papers on it, uh, and and would not have published this analysis if I didn't think that was the case. Uh, that that we've we've done a deep dive on how dust affects supernova cosmology. We've done a deep dive on how varied dust physics can be. We've actually, from our own data set, tried to push the limits on how different dust can be from galaxy to galaxy. And in fact, from our data set, we find it could be more varied than what we typically see in the Milky Way. Um, but even when we allow for that rather large variability in dust, we still come back and find a really strong measurement on the Hubble constant and on dark energy, and we 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 it's called marginalizing. We essentially propagate all of our understanding of how dust varies into our analysis and say, let's let this be a possibility. Let's analyze our data, assuming that this can be a possibility, and account for that in our error bars in in the uncertainties that we report um, in our analysis, and we still find this significance. And I mean, it sounds like, you know, like I know the shoes team and your and and your work with this level of meta-analysis, it is excruciatingly detailed, very precise. Everyone is double checked. You're your own worst critics and skeptics. As you say, you've been you've been obsessing about it. And yet if I was talking to someone from the Planck team who has measured the expansion rate of the universe from the cosmic microwave background radiation, they would be as certain as you about the expansion rate of the universe yeah. to as many, you guys could have a Sigma battle and it would be very impressive. 
how what happens next? Yeah, I think this is why we've we've ended up here where we're actually starting to talk about uh, how do we change cosmology. Um, That's exciting. It, it, yeah, each team, Planck and the supernovae, have um, really, really done our due diligence to to understand all of the possible sources of error, and we every time we come up with some idea of somehow something could have gone wrong, we check it, we include it in our analysis, and it simply doesn't change the final result. Um, and we we think that we've turned over every rock at this point. Um, so then what would a change to cosmology as we understand it today have to do to be able to explain the observations made in the Cepheid variables, but also yeah. explain the observations made in the in the cosmic microwave background data yeah, and make some yeah. predictions. What's what, so, what would feel if someone proposed it to you and you were like, Oh, I like, I like where that one's going. Yeah. A, a lot of the really interesting theories right now are, are in the very early universe, like pre CMB, pre recombination, pre the cosmic microwave background changing physics back then. A lot of that is partially, well, partially driven by, our supernova data set makes really good constraints about the properties of the universe and how they're evolving from about, ten, you know, 4 billion years on till today. And so we find that it's really hard to change physics, to have some kind of transition to the state of dark energy, to have some kind of weird living in some weird void in the universe, a, a weird under density. We, we really don't find any evidence for that in the supernova data. And so that ends up leading us to look past in, further into the past beyond the supernova data where, where we uh, are not sensitive to. So that's 10 billion years into the past all the way up to the CMB, about 14 billion years into the past. So there could be something going on in that range there, and there will be some experiments coming online that can probe this range. But it would also be kind of weird that it happens specifically in that range. So a lot of the interesting theories then start injecting new physics before the CMB. And it's possible that some of the signals of that could be measurable in the CMB. So. Typically, when you hear about pre-CMB physics, you start to get worried about, can, can we even test this? Can, and, and, and so I encourage people to pay most attention to the theories that actually make testable predictions. Uh, right. but, but there are some, and they're really exciting. What one, one example is early dark energy. It's not necessarily related to dark energy that we see today, but uses many of much of the same mechanism. So we call it dark energy as well, but we call it early dark energy because we think it may have been injected before the CMB was emitted. Um, but that's that's totally, um, you know, in the realm of theory and, and being tested. Right, of course, of course. But I guess the point being that that it it feels like a long shot to have the laws of physics fundamentally rearrange themselves at some set point in the distant past around when there were already stars and galaxies and that, clouds I, I of dust. And, yeah. 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 And, I mean, and, and, and yet, so you can imagine, or people are proposing ideas where there are things happening earlier on 
in the first few minutes, seconds, nanoseconds after the formation of the universe. But this is different from the idea of inflation. That's right. That is that is somehow injecting a signal into the cosmic microwave background that is making it slightly different than what you would anticipate yep. it should be. Yep. Yep. Right. And and no idea what that mechanism could necessarily be. And and so people are calling it dark energy. Like early that's it. Like calling it dark energy is already problematic enough. To call it early dark energy? Like what were they thinking? <laughs> yeah, we we're we're not the best at naming things, but uh but yeah, I mean I think just the 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 level of opportunity that's that's coming along is really, really exciting. Um and and keeps us going as scientists. And and if everything fit, that would be great, but we'd be out of a job. So we're 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 excited by this kind of stuff. Yeah, well, it is funny to me that that people like it's called the crisis in cosmology. And I think we have in history examples of various scientific camps being acrimonious to each other, destroying each other's dinosaur bones, um, calling each other names and and so on. But but every time I talk to cosmologists and scientists about this, all I get is excitement, enthusiasm, that finally like a log jam has been released and now new ideas can be considered when it was really hard to get those through before. Yeah, I, I, I love to hear that. I mean, I'm... I'm relatively young. There, there are physicists that have been around for a while and have seen this kind of discussion going on for a while, and and they they are hoping to see something new. They're really just seeing the same thing get stronger and stronger. So they're they're like ready to to, to you know ready for something to happen. So, um, but yeah, it's 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 really exciting, and and um, we we are. I mean, our goal in Pantheon Plus is to make sure that we've dotted all our I's, crossed all our T's, because that, that's the most important thing to us is we want to put out a reliable product and and let other people test it. It's all it's all posted on on uh, the internet for you all to grab it and test it and cross-check our analysis. And and um that's another thing that we're really proud of is that you, you can you can grab every piece and, and test mm-hmm. it. So what comes next for the for the project? Yeah, I mean uh, there's there's uh, a couple of different interesting avenues. So um, something that we haven't mentioned is um, measurements of the structure of matter. It's um, we sometimes we call it the clumpiness of matter in the universe, or this parameter called sigma eight. And there's some kind of similar thing going on there where measurements in the early universe don't quite match up with measurements in the late universe. Um, the late universe finds that matter is sort of distributed smoother than would be implied by our current model for cosmology. Um, it's not at the level of the Hubble crisis, the Hubble constant tension, um, but it is a similar issue that is also appears to be in, in, a, in potentially a significant amount of tension. The data sets that will be testing that are coming soon, including Type 1A supernovae will be able to help have a say in this and have um, a cross-check on other independent methods of measuring the clumpiness of matter. The thing is, in order to do that, you need lots and lots of Type 1A supernovae, like way more than 
than a thousand what we have. You need you need a, a nice distribution across the universe to measure how clumpy the matter is, um, and and the 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 field of matter in the universe. So we we need more, but we're going to be getting more, and that's coming from the Rubin uh, LSST telescope that's going to be coming online soon. Um, there's some other experiments that are collecting lots of supernovae as well uh, that will be making measurements of the clumpiness of matter, sigma eight. So that, that's really exciting because it could shed light on some of these dilemmas that we're facing. Um, and and then, yeah, LSST is, is going to find a million supernovae across the sky and we're going to be able to make even better tests of, of, of dark energy. Um, the forecasts are could be around a million, yeah. That's um, amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is the, the observer, like the Vera Rubin observatory is, is the thing I'm most excited about right now. Just it'll find planet nine. It'll find a bazillion asteroids and it'll see, you know, you mentioned how excruciating it's been to find 1570 supernova. It'll find a million. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's not without some hard work. And that's kind of where a lot of our effort is starting to shift is to prepare for that because that is, I mean, at, at this point, it's it's overwhelming what, what we're going to do with that data. Um, so we're, we're really starting to prepare for that. Oh. Yeah, and mostly figuring out how to program database queries and yeah. manage yeah. enormous amounts of, of yeah. data being poured onto the, onto the internet. Um, well, it was absolutely fascinating to talk to you about, about your research and it's quite exciting to kind of hear the cutting edge of, of where things are going in this field. Uh, if people want to sort of keep track of the Pantheon plus project and the work you're doing, what's the best place to do that? Yeah. Uh, GitHub is where, where we're hosting the data and where we will be updating it. If people have request additional data products, or if we make any uh, updates to anything, um, uh, you can always message me and we're happy to collaborate. That sounds great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. Yeah. Thank you. Great talking. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 55,000 people. I write every word. There's no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Josh Schultz and Andrew M. Gross who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.